The sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Just to make you all aware, our pastor Tom contracted the flu early last week, and Carol followed suit shortly after. And I mentioned this to ask you to pray for their family. It's especially difficult for them in light of recent events, specifically the uh, leukemia diagnosis of their granddaughter, Anna Caroline. So with Tom's absence this morning, we will take a break from our series on the Minor Prophets, which will resume next week, Lord willing. Today, as Keith already mentioned, is Mother's Day. I know I'm stating the obvious, but in case you're in your seat and your action is, reaction is, Mother's Day is today? You still have time to act like you haven't forgotten. <laughs> I'm glad we have this day to celebrate motherhood. And next month, we have a day to celebrate fathers. And I've heard it said that Father's Day really is just like Mother's Day, except you spend less money. <laughs> anyway, in keeping with what we are celebrating today, this morning, we will consider what lessons we can learn from one of the most recognizable mothers in all of Scripture. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, if you grew up Roman Ca- in the Roman Catholic Church like Carmen and I did, you prayed something called the Rosary. And the prayer that is repeated multiple times in the Rosary is the prayer entitled, Hail Mary. The first part of the prayer goes this way. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Now, if, if we examine those words, we should have no problem at all with the content. As those words come directly from Scripture, specifically from the angel Gabriel and from the lips of Mary's cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who Mary went to see after Gabriel's visit. So there should be no disagreement between Roman Catholics and Protestants up to this point in the prayer. 
The second part of the prayer, I believe, is what Protestants have problems with, and it goes this way. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now, for the most part, what Protestants object to is the phrase that describes Mary as the Mother of God. And also the part that asks Mary to pray for us today. Now, it's not my goal this morning to address the theological discussions, debates, and controversies resulting from the content of this prayer, but rather to point out that we shouldn't have a problem where there shouldn't be a problem. Yes, there is great debate about Mary being referred to as an intercessor alongside Jesus, but the other phrase, the one that refers to Mary as the mother of God, we really shouldn't have problems with. I think what we find objectionable with that phrase is the idea that Jesus somehow derived his divine nature from his earthly mother. But the thing is, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that either. Yes, the title Mother of God does not appear in Scripture, but it's a generally accepted descriptive term for Mary in historic Christianity. It's simply a statement of the fact that Jesus had an earthly mother, And in this sense, she is truly the mother of God. In many ways, the purpose of the affirmation was the church's desire to say more about Jesus' divinity than about Mary. It was not meant to convey the idea that Mary herself had a divine nature. Now, I mention this because what happens often in controversies is we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because we Protestants disagree with the Roman Catholic Church on many ideas concerning Mary, we have the tendency to have a negative view of this godly woman, which is inconsistent with the biblical paradigm. And as a result, there is by and large a sad neglect of the value of Mary as a model for our behavior. And Christians should view Mary as an exemplar, an excellent model as a woman, as a mother, as a human being. I mean, she gives us an example that transcends the distinction between men and women. As a person, she is a marvelous model of godliness worthy of our consideration. So this morning, I'd like for us to consider how Mary modeled godly behavior. Now, the passage that Miriam just read to us, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, is often referred to as the Annunciation. Let me read verses 26 to 34 again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? Let's stop here for now. In this passage, we're privy to the conversation that took place between Mary and the angel Gabriel. Now, we have the announcement that is brought by God through Gabriel to a peasant girl. What is about to take place? Now, 
We usually hear this passage read during the Christmas season. And because many of these biblical narratives are so succinct, so straight to the point, oftentimes we are left to imagine what the people in the narrative are thinking or feeling. So we try to read between the lines. But there's no question what Mary felt during this encounter. Verse 29 says unambiguously that she was troubled and confused. Maybe that's even an understatement. And this is perfectly understandable. It's not every day. When was the last time you were visited by an angel? I haven't met anyone who has been, and some claim, but it's not every day that an angel appears to a person. So we can only imagine Mary's shock and what she had to be thinking. But not only does an angel appear to her, but he gives her perhaps the most astonishing announcement that any human being up to this point in history has ever received from a messenger sent by God. Imagine being told that you are to be the bearer of the Christ child, the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. I'm surprised she didn't faint. And if she did, we have no record of it. (laughs) Now, knowing the culture of those times, I think it's reasonable to assume that Mary did not have much by way of a formal education, but she was no dummy. And even as it is surprising that she kept her wits about her after Gabriel's announcement, it's equally surprising that she was able to analyze the situation and ask the obvious question. Keeping in mind that Gabriel delivered the news to a girl who was a virgin, she naturally asked in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? In some translations, Mary asked it this way, how will this be? since I do not know a man. Now, her not knowing a man obviously doesn't mean that she's not acquainted with males or has never been introduced to a man. Rather, it's a biblical euphemism used to refer to the physical intimacy between a man and a woman that is prerequisite to having children. Now, you may recall another place in Scripture where this phrase was used. I'm referring to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where in some translations it says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. It wasn't a situation whereby Adam approached Eve, introduces himself, and says, Madam, I'm Adam, and voila, she's pregnant. (laughs) That's not it. And of course Gabriel knew what she meant. And proceeded with an explanation, verses 35 to 37. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this, will, this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. We then read, Mary's response in the verse that follows, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want to camp on verse 38 a bit. Because this is where we see Mary modeling a behavior that believers should emulate. But this verse, historically, is not without controversy and has been the focal point of 
a debate about Mary's role in God's plan of redemption. And the, the debate has to do with the phrase, let it be. Now, in our language, when we say, let it be to something, it could be a response that indicates surrender or acquiescence. When events occur that we have no control over, particularly bad or tragic ones, our reaction could be to say, let it be. There's nothing we can do. But from what I understand about the appearance of this phrase in the original Greek, it's in the imperative form. And let me just mention that I learned this from the writings and studies of men much more learned learned than me, because truly, in this case, truly, it's all Greek to me. (laughs) Anyway, what does it mean if it's in the imperative form? Well, let me give some examples from pop culture that might bring a bit of clarity. Hopefully, you've seen the classic movie by Cecil B. DeMille. Hmm? The Ten Commandments? We all remember, for those of you who have seen it, we all remember Charlton Heston who played the role of Moses. Do you remember who played the, the Pharaoh? It was Yul Brynner. And just as Heston brought great screen, uh, on-screen presence to the character of Mor- Moses, sometimes we think he's actually Moses. So did Brynner as the Pharaoh Ramses. And do you remember the line that Ramses often repeated when, uh, or the, the line that he uttered whenever he made a decree? He said, so let it be written, so let it be done. Maybe it's just my eyesight, but I don't see a whole lot of heads nodding. So let me give another example. For those, it's, it, it was before my time, I can promise you that. <laughs> and for those of you who belong to the somewhat younger generation, let me give another example. This time from the TV show, Star Trek, The Next Generation. The captain of the USS Enterprise, Jean-Luc Picard, whenever he gave a command, what does he say? Make it so. That's another imperative. Now, I I belabor this point, not just to reference pop culture, but because the imperative form of Mary's words in uh, in the Greek language leaves us with a few possible ways we can interpret what she was saying. She was, in effect, saying, do it! Do it. And in some theological circles, the phrase has come to be known as Mary's fiat. A fiat is a decree or an order. Now you can probably see where this is leading to. Because Mary's words were in the imperative form, one question we can legitimately ask is this. Was Mary giving a command to Gabriel or to God? Or is she speaking imperatively to herself? Well, In the same verse, we read how Mary described herself. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That she saw herself as a servant of God negates the notion that she was giving an order. After all, servants don't give orders. Now, there are many possible or many other points of debate coming from this passage, another one of which is whether or not her assent to the command of God will affect the outcome that follows. The classic Protestant view is that there was no thought on the part of Mary to say no or, disobey, or to disobey God's command. And, and if she said no, if she said no, God's going to overrule her anyway. 
Now, this may sound harsh, but the truth is, if Mary said no, God has the sovereign option of striking her dead for her disobedience. God has done that in other places in Scripture. In any case, there's no way that her acquiescence is a necessary condition for God's plan of redemption to move forward. Because if Mary, or if God doesn't use Mary, he'll find someone else to bring his son into the world. But all of this is hypothetical and moot because she did obey. Mary obeyed. And it's important for us to understand that her response is not authoritative, but rather submissive. As I said earlier, we can get a clue as to the posture of her heart when she said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. In other translations, it says, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Friends, consider the humility and submissiveness in her response. It models for us a behavior that every Christian needs to imitate. I mean, the posture of Mary's heart should be the posture of our hearts, whereby we who are referred to in Scripture as living sacrifices to our God, will say to him, command what you will, and will submit. And with all the controversies and debates surrounding Mary, this is one thing that the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants could agree on. Mary is an exemplary model of submission to the will of God. And as such, as such her actions speak to us because... Um, she was submitting herself to something she couldn't possibly understand in terms of implications and consequences. Again, it's not in Scripture, but if we allow our imaginations to transport us to that event, we can perhaps get a glimpse as to what was going on in Mary's soul. I wouldn't think that even while she was having the conversation with Gabriel, she was already beginning to have some idea of the weight and the burden that's coming upon her. And after Gabriel leaves, we can only imagine the sobering moments of clarity that followed when the specific dilemmas she will be facing comes in waves, one after another. I'm poor. How can I support the child God will be entrusting to me? How do I explain this to my parents? What will people say about me being an unmarried pregnant woman? I could be stoned to death. And what about Joseph? This godly, honorable man who trusts me and loves me. Will he love me after I tell him? Will he even believe me if I told him the truth? After all, who gives the story of an angel visitation as an excuse, a covering for sexual sin? Who does that? All of these questions with no clear answers. And the only thing she could hang on during those moments is her faith in the goodness of God. And because she believed in God, she was able to submit to Him. But even after God graciously answered those questions in His time, more questions came as Jesus grew. Remember when Jesus was presented to the temple and a righteous man named Simeon took him in his arms. Among the words he said to Mary as he was speaking to her were these words. A sword will pierce your own soul too. I mean, there was nothing 
beyond the story that told us what Mary thought about those words or how she felt. But I, I would imagine that those words were like a chill wind blowing through a mother's heart. And we all know what happened 30 years later. It makes one wonder, as Mary witnessed her beloved son being crucified, if she remembered those words that Simeon said to her many years before. Some of the most difficult moments in parenting that Carmen and I had to endure were those times when a child of ours got severely ill. And I'm sure every parent here knows that feeling. You feel so helpless, and if it were within your power, you'd remove their ailment from them, even willing to take it upon yourself if it means ending their suffering. Imagine how Mary felt as she watched her son suffer on a Roman cross. But even as we try to imagine what Mary was going through, it's not my intent to commend Mary for white-knuckling it throughout this event. There is something in the crucifixion narrative that we should not miss, the gracious hand of God sustaining Mary. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, oftentimes, we take this verse as a promise that God will supply all our physical needs. But it goes beyond that. God supplies us with our spiritual needs as well. That's why we ask for faith. That's why we ask for wisdom. That's why we ask for patience. We ask for emotional endurance in our labors, labors and trials. And we can rest in the fact that God empowers and equips those whom he calls for his purposes. He was the one sustaining Mary. Friends, have you ever been asked to do something for God's sake that in advance you knew would be costly, maybe even supremely costly? When those moments come, what do we have that we can hold on to. I mean, God knows that we're weak. He himself has to supply the faith that will move us to trust and obey in spite of the costs that come with obedience. Remember the saints mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? The one we sometimes refer to as the hall of faith? Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Gideon, Rahab, Samson, David, Samuel, virtually all of the Old Testament prophets and so on, they were listed by the writer of Hebrews to encourage, us, to encourage us. But to encourage us to what end? Well, chapter 12 of Hebrews continues this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So encourage us to do what? To run the race that is set before us, to look to Jesus, and to live lives in humble submission to what God would have us do. So when those moments come, when we are asked, to do something in ministry perhaps that we know in advance would cost us dearly 
we should look back at the cloud of witnesses who obeyed God's call. For sure, they were all sinners who needed a Savior, including Mary. And even though their obedience by faith is meant to encourage us, ultimately, our faith is on God, just as their faith was on God. So as we draw encouragement from the lives of those saints, we do well to remember Mary, the mother of Jesus, a model of submission who said, let it be to the call of God on her life. Let's pray.